And it's been a blessing to me, and I want to thank you for the opportunity. I want to thank the church for being several things. First of all, thank you for being faithful to the meeting. I think that's the greatest gift you can ever give to your pastor is just being in the place. You know, when you have a meeting, I know how it is to be a pastor. You want everybody to be there, you know, and you, you can kind of, sometimes I make the mistake of looking around instead of seeing the people that are there, I see the ones that aren't there. And so I, I just commend you and thank you for being faithful and being in your place. I also want to thank you for being friendly. You know, some churches aren't very friendly. <laughs> they aren't. They just kind of look around and go, who are you and why are you here? And uh, I just want to thank you for being friendly to me. And uh, that's, a, that's a blessing. And again, just the, the, the kindness and the hospitality, the meals, the things that you've done for me. Uh, I really am very grateful for it. And I just want to encourage you again to love your pastor. You have a wonderful pastor. I know he loves this church. I know he loves this area. I, I uh, am very encouraged anytime I'm able to be around him. I just respect him. Uh, for the work that the Lord has used him to do here and how he's been faithful. And I just am thankful for the joy of the Lord that he has on his life. That is always a blessing to me. I love it. He'll, we'll be talking and he'll be telling me a story and he's laughing before he tells me the story. And I love that. I just do. There's some joy there and I want to be like that. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and your pastor certainly has that. And I know I need more of that. And so I'm thankful uh, for his encouragement. So love your pastor. You know, if you see his shoes are wearing out, buy him a new pair of shoes. If you see the tires on his car are wearing out, buy him a new car. You know, I mean, it's just be a blessing to him, okay? And uh, take care of him. I also want to say this, too, if I can. I'm, I know I'm taking a little bit of liberty here. And you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 22. That's where we'll find our text tonight. But I also want to say thanks to Brother Lamar. Um, look, I'm a pastor as well, and so I'm thankful for the assistant pastors that I have at our church. Um, you know, uh, it's a blessing to have some help. You know, one person can't do everything, and uh, I'm just thankful for assistance. A lot of times, unfortunately, I think sometimes assistants are treated like, you know, they're, they're second class in, in the ministry, and that is not true, man. I'm telling you. I just appreciate it. it is obvious the effort that you've put into this meeting to enhance it. I mean, the specials, the singing, being here at practices. Listen, this guy's, I mean, did, you, did anybody watch the energy he used to direct the choir tonight? I mean, he's not up here just doing 4-4 four, four time, you know. I mean, he, he is giving some real energy. And I just, I personally appreciate that because I like, like your pastor, I like people that have joy. But I also like to see a young guy that's got some zeal. And, and I know, I just like it, you know, bring some energy to the table. There are too many lethargic Christians. I'm so excited to be here tonight, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes churches, here's what I've made the long contention of, is singing old hymns is not a problem among young, amongst young people. I mean, look around, you got a lot of young people in your church. You know, the problem is singing hymns in a terrible fashion. Oft times the day seems long, the load is hard to bear. Yeah, nobody wants to sing that, okay? So when you sing it with some energy and some pep, uh, you know, that's a blessing. And I, I can tell that he does all ministry that way. And I say, keep it up, man. I have never wanted to be somebody that would pour cold water on somebody's zeal because it's easier uh, to calm a zealot than it is to raise a corpse. So, hey, go on, buddy, go on, all right? So, uh, man, you have a wonderful church. I hope that you appreciate it, you value it, and you love it. Um, I, I really hope that you feel that way. Matthew 22, would you stand with me, please? We're going to read verses 34 through 40. Thank you for allowing me to take a few minutes just to take some liberty to, to just express my gratitude and just to try and encourage you a little bit in the Lord to keep doing what you're doing where God has placed you here. And, uh, man, I'm excited for what the Lord is doing in this place. Matthew 22, begin reading in verse 34. The Bible says, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence. I love that when I see those kind of phrases in the Bible. You know, Jesus was able to make uh, uh, mute people talk, and uh, people who could talk shut up. I mean, he had a great gift. It was amazing. It says he put the Sadducees to silence, and they were gathered together there. Uh, the Pharisees were. Then one of them asked them, which was a lawyer, he asked him a question, tempting him and saying, you got to watch those lawyers when they ask you questions, you know. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? 
You see how he's kind of starting with some flattery? Master, oh, you're an educated man, you know a lot. We've got a question for you. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I love Jesus' answer there. I, in my mind's eye, I don't see where Jesus was going, hmm, let me think about that. Immediately he just says, oh, you want the answer? Here's the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. Hey, and I'll give you a bonus one. The second is like unto the first, love your neighbors yourself. This hangs the whole law. The whole Bible hangs on this. Well, tonight I want to preach to you about back to the basics. I'm not going to give you anything you don't already know. You already know what I'm going to say tonight. But sometimes we need to be reminded about it. Because the truth be told, if you'll get the truth of what I'm saying tonight from this text, that's what revival hangs on. That's what church life hangs on. That's what everything hangs on. And so I want to preach to you about back to the basics. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help me tonight. Help us for just a moment, all of us, to put out the cares and distractions of the day and of the world and to just think about you for a little bit tonight. And I pray that you would accomplish a great goal this evening, that we would leave here tonight in love with you just a little bit more than when we walk through the door. And I pray that you'd help us with that tonight. Please fill me in thy spirit. You know I'm a sinful, needy man. And I pray that you would use me like a tool in your hand to accomplish your work through your spirit in the lives of your people. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I was an assistant pastor for about five years, and I enjoyed being an assistant pastor. Uh, but when I first started out, man, I was so excited uh, to be in the ministry. And uh, when I uh, got in the ministry, man, I just couldn't believe it. I was getting paid to do what God had called me to do. I wasn't getting paid hardly anything, but I was getting paid, you know. And uh, my, I, my job consisted of basically just doing anything and everything the, the preacher needed me to do. And I did a lot of different stuff. We had a, a Christian school at our church, and so one of the tasks that I was given was I needed to, I was going to be the varsity basketball coach for our high school. And uh, man, I, I, I jumped into that. I was excited about that. I like playing basketball. And you know, there's a difference between playing it and coaching it, though. There's a difference between watching on TV and telling those idiots what they need to do and actually coaching, you know. And, uh, uh, but I, I was a coach for, for three seasons there, and we, we did really well. I, I uh, won our conference all three years, and man, we, we had really good teams. I could I, I count on one hand the games we lost and won several tournaments, and it was just a, 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 it was, it was a fun experience for me. If you fast forward several years, my son, my oldest son, who's 16 now, I remember when he was 10 years old, he signed up for YMCA basketball, and they needed coaches. Well, I said, well, you know, I, I, I've coached. I mean, I coached varsity basketball, man. We won tournaments and conference championships, you know. I mean, I, I can handle these 10-year-olds. And so uh, we, uh, I volunteered to do that. Well, we were sitting in a room with all the other coaches, and the way they did it in our community, we had a smaller community, but the way we did that is there was basically a draft, and it was, I, I ended up getting the number one overall pick. And all the coaches would go out, and we'd watch the boys, and we'd evaluate them on a clipboard, you know, and I got the number one pick. And there was this kid, he was 10 years old, I don't know what he's doing now, he'd be about 16 or 17 years of age now, I mean, who knows, I'll look up and I'll see him on TV someday maybe, because he was a very, very good basketball player for a 10 year old. And I know I can recognize him if I see him on TV, because he had a name that I've never heard for any other person as long as I've been living, and I doubt I will ever hear this name again. I asked him, I said, son, what's your name? He said, my name is Po Boy. Like, that's your name? Yeah. Like, how do you spell that? P-O-B-O-Y. I said, like the sandwich? He said, huh? I said, never mind. Most people just called him Poe. And uh, man, you can laugh all you want at him, but he was a good basketball player. And I didn't care what you call him, give him the ball, you know? And so uh, we, we got together and we were practicing and Man, I, I was like, okay, we got the best player in all the league, and this kid is good. I mean, he can shoot the ball. He can dribble the ball. He can, he, I mean, this kid's good. So we, I designed this offense, and we worked, and we worked, and we worked, and we worked on this motion offense, and we, we just went over and over and over and over again, and uh, we had extra practices. Man, I was excited about the season to start. The very first game that we played in, I was pumped to get this offense rolling, man. I mean, with Poe, we are going to score tons of points, man. I mean, we, we got this figured out. But the problem was, is the coach that I coached against had coached 10-year-olds for many seasons. 
And he did the exact opposite of me. He did not work on anything offensively. All he did was worked on defense. And he had a half-court press trap. And if you're not into basketball, that just means they killed us anytime we tried to bring the ball on their side of the court. And here's what happened. My boys forgot everything basic about basketball. They saw these defenders in front of them running at them, and they forgot how to bounce the ball. We call that dribbling. They forgot how to pass the ball. I mean, literally, we had a meltdown. I remember in this game, a kid grabbed the ball, tucked it under his arm like he was a football player, ran down the side. I think he even stiff-armed a kid. I called a timeout. I brought him over. I said, what are you doing? He said, I wanted to shoot it. Well, I'm glad you wanted to shoot it, son, but you got to dribble it. You know I mean? It was a mess. I mean, we got destroyed. The whole point I'm trying to make is, I think the same thing happens to a lot of churches and a lot of Christians. Say, so what do you mean? I think a lot of Christians and a lot of churches get caught up in doing ministry or doing church or doing spiritual activities that they forget the basics of Christianity. Just like my boys forgot the basics of basketball. But I want you to know tonight that everything that we do well, everything that we do well is the result of mastering the basics. I mean, for instance, I'm a huge college football fan. I love, 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 love college football. Um, and if you're a football player, you play for your high school or you played football, you understand that that's what football practices started. I mean, they, I don't know if they do this much anymore, but they used to have two-a-day practices. And basically what you did is you just worked on the basics. Maybe you're not a sports fan. I've been using some sports metaphors. Maybe you're a musician. Because I'm thankful for my kids playing music, and, and all of my kids are pretty musical, and we try to teach them to play uh, uh, instruments, and so all of them play the piano. That was mandatory at our house, and, and some of them picked up some extra instruments. And let me tell you, you ever heard a kid start off playing the violin? <laughs> let me just tell you, the violin is one of the most beautiful instruments in all of the world. I, I mean, I love Vivaldi's Four Seasons. I mean, there's a beautiful, beautiful pieces of music played on the violin. But if you've heard a child start on the violin, it sounds like somebody killing cats in a trash can. I mean, it's, it's awful. It's awful, awful sound. Uh, but, man, I remember my, my oldest son can play the piano beautifully. He, he has a great gifted ear for playing the piano. And, and it's wonderful in our home to hear him play a piece by Chopin or something. I mean, you can hear him in there playing it on the piano. And it's like, wow, that was great. But I remember when he was about five or six years old, we'd make him practice. And he didn't want to practice. He'd rather be outside like any boy would. And so he's sitting on the piano. And I remember him playing, literally, I'm not exaggerating this. He would sit there for a half an hour sometimes and just play Pop Goes the Weasel. Dun, 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 dun. I still hear that in my head. Yeah, right? Uh, but it paid off. But listen, whether it was when they were young and they were playing their scales, or now where they can actually play some pieces with some complexity that are beautiful, they still, I still hear my children in the music room in our house playing the scales. Why? Because even if you are a master musician, you still have to incorporate the basics. The basics. It's like that in any area of the life. In life, in fact, we would call this, you've got to get back to the fundamentals. Now, I know that word scares everybody to death today. I mean, used to, in churches like this, we would say we're an independent, fundamental Baptist. Now we kind of shy away from that word because it's kind of been, not trying to make a pun on words, but it's been hijacked by fundamental terrorists, you know, and so we don't want to be, we don't want to be associated with that, but, but there's something about the fundamentals of something. The fund, when I talk about the fundamentals, I'm saying we're returning to the main principles of something. Well, in this passage, Jesus returns us to really the basics of our faith. Let me explain to you what's going on in the text. And by the way, I've got a lengthier introduction and a shorter sermon tonight, so bear with me through the introduction. But Jesus here in this chapter has fielded a political question. There was a group of people that were more interested in the politics of the day, and they were called the Herodians. And the Herodians kind of got together with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and neither of these groups particularly liked each other. They just disliked Jesus more than they disliked themselves. And so they kind of gathered together, and in order to, to an attempt, they were watching all the multitudes and the crowds kind of gather around Jesus, and now he's gaining popularity. And so they, they, gathered, they gathered together to try and oppose him, to discredit him in the eyes of the people. 
So the Herodians come and they ask this political question. They said to him, is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, how many of you wish, if you know the Bible, how many wish Jesus would have answered that question differently than he did? I do. I wish he said, no, don't pay your taxes. Man, praise the Lord. Good answer. But instead, he said, well, here, here's how I'm going to answer that. Take out a coin. And he takes out the coin. And when he does, he says, whose image is on that coin? Well, Caesar's image. He says this great classic answer. Then give the things that belong to Caesar, give them to Caesar. So in other words, if it, it pay your taxes, they belong to the government, and you've got to do that uh, to function in the government, and that's, that's a fine thing to do. He said, but, but he added something to him. He said, listen, uh, but you make sure that you give to God the things that only belong to God. And there's some great truth in that, right? I mean, when you think about it, we talk about this Sunday morning, whose image is stamped on us? The image of God. So just like that coin, the image of God is stamped on us. And so we should never, ever, ever give uh, to Caesar what really belongs to God. Now give to Caesar what belongs to him, but give to God what only belongs. What a classic, wonderful answer. I mean, I can see the Herodians walking away, you know. Well, then the Sadducees say, well, you guys don't know what you're doing. And so they come up, and instead of asking him a, a, a political question, they ask a theological question. Now, this has got to be one of the goofiest hypothetical questions in all of the Bible. They come to Jesus and they say, we got a question for you. Uh, you understand Old Testament law, and under Old Testament law, if a man is married to a woman and, and uh, uh, that man dies, then that man's brother is to marry her and raise up children if they had no children. How many of you are thankful we don't live under that law today? You say, man, if you knew my brother, blah, 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 right? And, uh, and so they said, you know the law that uh, talks about that to uh, uh, continue the land in the name of the people and so forth. He's, they said, imagine that there was a woman and her husband dies and she marries his brother and they have no children and then he dies and they marry the other brother and then uh, they have no children and he dies. And they do this seven times. Now, how many of you have read that before and thought, man, if I was about the fourth or fifth brother, I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I am not marrying this woman. I don't know what she's putting in the, in the coffee in the morning. I'm staying far away from this woman. But this is the hypothetical question that they give. And they say, in the resurrection, because they didn't believe that there was a resurrection, so they're trying to discredit him, whose uh, wife is she going to be in heaven? And Jesus says, you guys are ignorant. You don't understand the Bible. And he takes them and quotes a passage. In the, see, the Sadducees only believed in the writings of Moses. And so he quotes a passage from the writings of Moses and it, where it talks about there is a resurrection. He said, you guys are ignorant. You don't understand the scripture. And he just kind of puts them to shame. And I can see the Pharisees over in the corner giggling. Because they didn't believe what the Sadducees did. They, they believed in a resurrection. So they loved the fact that Jesus shot them down. But they were a little discouraged because they wanted to shoot Jesus down. But they had the mentality that said, well, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So they come up with a foolproof question, and they're going to ask him not a political question, not a theological question. They're going to ask him an ethical question. And so they come to him and they say, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? What was the greatest commandment in the Bible? Now, again, the purpose was to discredit him and turn the people against him. You've got to understand the mindset of a Pharisee. The Pharisees loved rules and traditions. I mean, above anything, they, they, were, they, they loved rules. Now, I'll get you, I, don't get me wrong, I don't mind rules. I, I, I really don't. I know some people hate rules and they want to rebel against every rule. I kind of like rules. I mean, when I drive down the road, I'm thankful that there's some rules, you know. You stay on your side, I'll stay on mine. And, and don't you, the other day I was driving past, man, a lady was driving with her cell phone. This one, a teenager, a middle-aged lady driving with her cell phone, apparently needed bifocals because she was driving like this, looking at her phone going, you know, lady, put your phone up, man. There's some rules here, right? I, I, when I play a game, I want to know before we start, because I'm very competitive, I want to win. And so before we start, what are the rules? Because I plan on beating your brains out with, uh, according to the rules, right? And so the Pharisees loved these rules. They loved, loved to talk about the rules. And they had documented 613 commands in the law. 
Now, I've never stopped to count them in the law. I'm just going to assume because I've heard a lot of authors say the same thing. 613 commands. I'm going to trust that they're right. I'm told that there are 248 positive commands and 365 negative commands. That 365 uh, negative commands, kind of that number rings a bell with us. That's one for every day. Could you imagine every day when you dropped off your children at school, you said, all right, sweetheart, what is the negative command for today? What are you not supposed to do today? I mean, they just loved rules. They loved talking about the rules. They loved arguing about the rules. They loved implementing the rules. They love the rules. But here's the problem. If there are 613 commands in the Bible, according to the law, no one could ever hope to know them all. Not the common ordinary person. And so what they did is they separated them into heavy, what we would call important, or they separated them into light, what you would call unimportant. And those of you that might have a Catholic background, you might remember that. There are some uh, venial sins and mortal sins. It's kind of like, these are the really bad ones you don't do, and these are the ones that, eh, not so big of a deal. That's kind of what the Pharisees were, were doing in, the, in their life. The problem that stemmed from this is that no one, here's the problem, no one could really agree upon what was heavy and what was light. I mean, what was heavy to me might be heavy to you, and, and, and there was a lot of debate about that. And again, let's kind of pick on Christianity a little bit more. You ever met somebody that said you could lose your salvation? How many of you know somebody that feels that you could lose your salvation? And, and my question for them is always, well, what sin is it that you have to commit in order to lose your salvation? And here's the thing. Don't you think if you could lose your salvation, that's a pretty important nugget of truth to know? All right, what sin do I commit that's going to get me in big trouble here? Well, the the truth of the matter is, is nobody I know knows which sin that is. They can't really declare that. Why? Well, because it's not really taught in the Bible. But see, they would debate about these kind of things. And so what they would do is spend countless hours debating these things. I can imagine that they would do this in some place like, I don't know if you've ever been to a small southern town, but a lot of good debating goes on in the barber shop. Right? I mean, man, uh, them old farmers hanging out. I mean, they'd be arguing, which tractor's best, blue ones, green ones, or red ones? You know, and then everybody's got an opinion. Or, man, you argue in the barber shop about the best quarterback or whatnot. And, I mean, there's a lot of good debates that we get into. Again, I'm a sports fan. I mean, somebody might question, who is the best basketball player? And somebody wants to say, Michael Jordan. I'm amazed at how many people say Michael Jordan was the best basketball player and they never even saw him play. I'm not arguing that maybe he was the best basketball player, but I imagine there's somebody from a generation before him who said, well, if you want to talk championships, Bill Russell had more championships. You want to talk points, score in a game, Will Chamberlain scored 100 in one single game. I mean, you want to talk now, a lot of people think LeBron James maybe today, and so a lot of people, and then you say LeBron James, and then people get all mad about you. And so that's what I'm talking about. Nobody can agree on who is the best basketball player. It is a debate we like to have. Somebody might debate, maybe, maybe sports isn't your thing, but you want to debate who the best president was. Was it George Washington, the founding father of our great nation? Was it Abraham Lincoln, the great leader who led us through the Civil War and, and, and emancipated slavery? Please don't say Donald Trump. Please, please don't say that to me. But uh, we could debate about who was the best president. In fact, you go onto Google, and I typed in on, on Google, who is the best And I didn't even fill in the blank, and you know how it gives you suggestions. When I typed in, who is the best, the first word that uh, uh, popped up when I said it was, who is the best Pokemon? So I imagine somewhere somebody is having a debate, maybe even in a barbershop, about who is the greatest Pokemon. I don't know. The only one I know is Pikachu, so that's what I'm sticking with. But here the thing is, is the Pharisees, they were very good at splitting hairs. You understand what... Splitting hairs is, right? Splitting a hair is to argue energetically over a very small difference or a trivial point in order to win an argument at all costs or in order to deviate from the main point at hand. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Tonight we sang the great classic hymn, Victory in Jesus. I imagine that's kind of the Baptist anthem that's sung in every Baptist church across America. Victory in Jesus. Did you want to split hairs? You want to get down to the, to the last verse there? I uh, heard about a mansion. He's built for me in glory. I've heard about the streets of gold. What streets of gold? Maybe you should read your Bible. The Bible never says anything about streets of gold anywhere. It says street, singular of gold. So you all better get your theological songs in order here. I'm going to go back and tell all my friends, Rich Farinella pastors a heretical church <laughs> singing about streets of gold. That isn't even biblical. It's a street of gold, thank you very much. 
In fact, I really do, whenever I sing it, I say street of gold just because I'm a hair splitter. No, I, I, honestly, that, that, that's, that's splitting hairs, right? It's to argue about very small differences or unimportant details. And so, essentially, these people had done this. And, and we've all been guilty of doing things like this. They, were, they, they took the trivial and, and made it important and made things that were... Uh, they took... Uh, they made trivial things important and important things very trivial. And we, we can do this. In fact, Jesus described them this way. He, he said, you have, you have you're, you're blind guides. You've strained at a gnat and you've swallowed a camel. What's he talking about? Again, Jesus constantly used hyperbole and his extreme exaggeration to prove a point. Any of you in here ever swallowed a bug? Yeah, everybody has. I mean, you've had a bug fly up your nose or get in your ear or go down your throat and you, you know, I mean, I remember when I was playing baseball when I was a little boy. I grew up in Ohio, man. The little gnats would be flying all around you out in the outfield. And, you know, I was usually stuck way out in left field. And, hey, let's put that kid out there. And, man, the bugs are out there. And every once in a while, I mean, one would fly in your mouth. I wonder how many bugs we have consumed and don't know. And everybody, I saw many hands said, yeah, I've eaten a bug before. Well, I doubt you choked on it. You probably didn't like it, but you choked on it. You didn't choke on it. You swallow a little gnat. It's nothing. He said, you guys are over here gagging, choking, and carrying on, on on tiny little gnat bugs. He said, but in one gulp, you swallow a camel. Again, extreme exaggeration to show that they were taking trivial things and making them important, and important things they were making trivial. He's, he's getting on to them. He said, what, what, do you, what do you mean about that? He's saying you... you you emphasize how you clean the cups and how you wash the dishes. Kind of sounds like my mother-in-law. You come over here and you tell us how to wash the dishes. He said, but you're not worried about cleaning your heart. Doesn't that sound like making something unimportant, important, and something that's important, unimportant? You see how Jesus got after him about this kind of thing? But what they did with this question of theirs, they I can see him so smugly saying it. What's the greatest commandment? Is that they figured no matter what Jesus answered, they could absolutely argue about it. I know this isn't Sunday school, and so it's maybe not time for dialogue, but in my mind, there were two basic commandments that really did surface to the top all the time. The one would be this, the Sabbath day. I mean, you remember in the Bible, the Sabbath day, that was a big deal to the nation of Israel. It kind of set them apart from other nations. So this was a big deal, and it was a big deal to them about Jesus. I mean, if he healed somebody on the Sabbath day, they were very bent out of shape about that. In fact, you remember the one time that the disciples, they were kind of going through, and, and they lawfully took some corn from a man's field. You were lawfully allowed to uh, glean from the edges. They took some corn because they were hungry, and the Pharisees attacked him about that. What are, you, what are you doing picking corn on the Sabbath day? Now, again, this is my own warped mind. Whenever I read the Bible, I always wonder, why were the Pharisees out there then? I mean, I, I always envisioned them coming up from the corn stalks like it was hee-haw. <laughs> you know, like, what are you guys doing there? And they come up and they're, they're, they're like, ha-ha, you're picking corn on the Sabbath day. So they thought that Jesus might say Sabbath day because that was a big deal. That, that was a big commandment there. But there was another one, if you remember, it was very near and dear to the life of an Israelite, a faithful Jewish person, and that was circumcision. Remember, they would even hurl that at their enemies. You Remember, remember David goes against Goliath, and he's like, I'm not going to let this uncircumcised Philistine blaspheme our God. I mean, that, that was a big deal to them because that was a... That was a personal gesture. This was a personal symbol and covenant between them and God. So they figured this. Jesus is probably going to say either the Sabbath day or circumcision. If he says circumcision, we're going to jump on him and say, See, this guy has no regard whatsoever for the Sabbath day. Ah, and they got him. If he says, Oh, I think circum uh, uh, Sabbath day is the most important. See, this guy isn't even interested in Judaism. That is a covenant symbol with us and God. And they figure no matter how he answers it, we've got him. They just didn't account for something. Jesus didn't say either of those things. And Jesus didn't sit there while the Jeopardy music is playing going, hmm, hmm, I wonder what I should say here. Ooh, man, there's so many good ones out there. Which one is it? No, I mean, he just looks right at him. Well, duh, that's an easy answer. Love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. He starts, he, he does something that blows their mind. 
he starts quoting to them the Shema passage from Deuteronomy 6. Every faithful Jewish man would quote that at least two times a day in the morning and the evening. And so he blasted them with this. Now here's what I love about Jesus because I'm a fairly simple person. I like somebody just to tell it to me straight, say it like it is, say what you mean and mean what you say, and let's get on with it. And Jesus appears to be that way. Don't you love the fact that in the Old Testament, God did us a favor and he took these 613 commands and he boils them down to 10. I can handle that. Oh, have no other gods before me. Don't make graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day. Obey your parents. Uh, don't murder. Don't, don't steal. Uh, uh, don't uh, commit adultery. Don't lie and don't covet. I, I can handle those 10. But Jesus does us a favor. He boils them down to even two. He says the whole law, those Ten Commandments that summarize those 613, love God and love people. Let's just settle it like that and let's make it simple. I love that. I love the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. I like that. That helps me. And Jesus did that. He knew that sometimes less is more. And so those are the points of my message tonight. Very simply, can I give them to you tonight? Two basics. Let's get back to the fundamentals. Here they are. Number one, we are commanded to love God. The greatest command is to love God. It's to love Him with all we have, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our possessions, our service. It's to love Him with all that we have. Now I want to clarify tonight, loving God can easily be confused with other things. A lot of times a person can say, oh, I love God. But, but what we're really describing is not really a love for God. You say, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, it's, it's sometimes it would be possible to love ideas about God rather than loving God. Listen, I don't have time to, I mean, you, you ought to just nod your head so I can hear it rattle, because if I think you got it, I don't have to labor here long, and we can get out of here at a good time. But the truth of the matter is, is a lot of times people think, well, I love these kind of concepts about God. But when we have ideas about God that are not who he has declared himself to be, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. And there are a lot of even good folks in Baptist churches like this one that have these concepts and these ideas about God that are very important. To, that's why people say this, well, I don't think God would ever. Well, whether you think he would or wouldn't is really not important. Who did he declare himself to be? Well, I just, I, I, how about this one? I love this one. Well, I, God knows my heart. I think the Lord would understand. You better be careful about that because a lot of times when people say that, they're really just trying to justify their sin and they're trying to say something that I think God would understand when he's already given his opinion about it in the Bible. What I'm saying is, I know sometimes we feel that I think God should be like this and this and this, and so we end up falling in love with our own ideas and concepts about God instead of really loving God for who he is and who he's declared himself to be. Here's another thing I think gets confused with it. I think a lot of people love things that are associated with God instead of really loving God. You say, what do you mean? Well, I think some people love their church. Now, I, do you love your church tonight? Good, I hope that you do. Uh, I really hope that you love your church. But the truth of the matter is, is I believe that if you love God, you can't help but love your church. But you can love your church without loving God. And I know people that are that way. I mean, they don't really love God. They're really not interested in obeying Him and serving Him and, and following His commands and living a Spirit-filled life, but they love, love, love their church. I mean, they never miss a service. And you see how that can get easily confused with love for God? I mean, you see somebody that's there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, they're, they're there all of the time, but really they don't love God. They just love all the things that come with being connected to a church, and they love the benefits of being at church and the social ramifications and, and the purpose in life, and they, 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 they love how it makes them feel when they come because they can check off their spiritual box and they love church but they don't love God listen I know I know people that love their pastor I hope you love your pastor but the truth of the matter is is you can't love God without loving loving your pastor but you can love your pastor without loving God point in case is there are a lot of people that I mean their pastor has got to be they, they see their pastor about everything I mean they want to know should I buy a Ford or a Chevy <laughs> Listen, I am not the oracle of wisdom. Buy a car that fits within your budget that you like, okay, you know? I, I mean, but, but there are some people that are that way, and their, their pastor needs to be there for their birthday party, and needs to be there when they're in the hospital, needs to be there, needs to be, and what has happened is their pastor becomes their God. Now, again, I want to say it. I think if you love God, you will love your pastor because you will love the things of God because you love God, and God cares about his pastors. 
But I'm telling you, you can love the things of God instead of really loving God. And Jesus here in this text does not compartmentalize our love for him by saying love him with all your soul and all your heart and all your mind. He says with everything that you are, and he tries to describe that, love God that way. So he says, let's break that down very quick. He says love him with your heart. The heart is the core of one's personal being. That's why the Bible says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So love God with all your heart. Everything that you are, love God with that. He says, love him with your soul. Man, that's your emotions. I want to be very careful here. I know people describe, they display their emotions in different ways. I know some of you would, I, I love guys that say, I'm not an emotional person. But they get angry all the time. Hello, Dub, that's an emotion. You are an emotional person. You just mean you don't cry at Hallmark movies. I get that, man. No, who, man, I hope nobody in here watches Hall, man or, uh, male or female. Anyway, I digress. But, but, you know, we're to love God with our emotions. Now, again, that's displayed different ways. My dad is a very quiet man, a very reserved individual, doesn't say a whole lot. He lets my mom do that for him, you know. I remember I was preaching, and, and I like people to say amen. And I remember one time he came up to me, he said, you know, Michael, I, I know you like people to say amen in church. He's like, but I've tried. I just can't. And I said, Dad, that's all right. At least you want to. So whether you're the kind of person that laughs out loud or cries when they hear a song or raises their, I mean, men in our church, we raise hands sometimes. And I know there's some people, when somebody gets happy and raises their hand, you can see them around here going, what are they doing? And so when we had a visitor one time, man, he was an amener, and man, I said something, he was like, Amen! And everybody was like, What? <laughs> you know, hey, listen, I, I'm all for expressing emotion, and sometimes it, it's veiled in different ways. And so whether you're kind of like my dad and very reserved and don't do it, 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 even if you don't shout, at least you inside every once in a while want to at least grunt for God. <laughs> right? I mean, it, it, I think there needs to be a loving of God with whatever emotion you possess. He said, love him with your heart, the core of who you are. And, and, and love him emotionally. Love him, I mean, it's not, I know God put our head above our heart and we need to let reason govern our emotion. I get all of that. But I still think there needs to be some kind of emotion involved in God. Yeah. Man, we need to love him also, though, with our mind. Do you know that our faith is very reasonable? I know our world thinks that it's just a bunch of, like I said, emotional hoo-ha. They see some crazy snake handling church and people running around acting a fool and swinging from the chandeliers and they think there is no substance to this. But I'm telling you, there is deep thought and reason that is found within the pages of God's word. And we are to love our God even in our thoughts and the way we think. Listen, there is no virtue in being stupid. God has given you some gray matter in your head and you ought to use it and use it to love Him. So I'm just simply saying, and I'll move on, from this we can gather what genuine love for God looks like. There needs to be an authentic love for God that starts with God-oriented affections, desires, and thoughts. And what that does is it trickles down into our speaking. It trickles down into our behavior. It influences the way we spend our money, how we dress, how we drive. Amen or oh my? When I was driving down the road, my kids were little. They were in car seats in our minivan. And I heard one little voice from the back say, Daddy, what is a moron? I felt very convicted. And then I said, it's this guy in front of me that won't hurry up. But anyway, uh, it influences the way we drive, right? It influences all the forms of entertainment we indulge in. So no matter what we're doing, our love for God is to be seen in our action. Because God has never been pleased. He's never even sought after empty words and rituals. You know what he wants? He wants a people. Love him. Just like you want somebody in your life that loves you for who you are. Don't you? I'm thankful for my wife tonight. She knows me better than anybody in this world. She knows my ups and my downs. She knows my, my shortcomings. I only have one or two, but she knows them. And you know what? She knows them and she still loves me. 
And that's one of the things that we, we love about God, don't we? He knows the very hairs on our head or the lack thereof. He, he, in my case, he knows which ones are black and which ones are gray. He, he, he knows, and he knows everything about me, and yet he loves me. But you know what? You know what he's saying to me? I command you to not form idols in your mind of who I should be. I command you to love me because I am your God and this is who I've declared you to be. And I command you to love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. You use your thinker and your feeler and your chooser to love me. Number two. The first, or the second is like unto the first. We are commanded to love people. Now loving people is kind of hard sometimes, isn't it? I'm not huge on poetry, but I have memorized a few poems. Here's one poem that I've committed to memory. To dwell above with those we love, well, that will be glory. To dwell below with those we know, well, that's another story, you know? And, and, and I can feel that way sometimes. But Jesus commands us here. He says if there's a real love for God, there's going to be a love for others. In fact, in the Bible, we find that the criterion of whether our love for God is real, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, he says the criterion to know whether your love for God is authentic is whether you love people. I've found that some people are very strong on ethics, but they're very weak on relationships. I have found that while others stress loving people, they really don't stress loving God. That's why people say, well, aren't Christians supposed to be loving? Meaning, I should be able to do whatever I want to do. You know, the context of how I love other people needs to be guided by how much I love God and His Word and His principles. So, so in verse 39, this has been confused by some, uh, I guess, maybe well-meaning psychologists and so forth. They would say this, that we see God commands us to love ourselves, according to verse 39. No, He doesn't. He's starting on the premise and the idea that you naturally do love yourself. I don't have to... Listen, i got five kids... I did not have to teach a single one of them how to be selfish. In fact, every kid I've ever known, I've been a pastor, I've visited a lot of hospitals and newborn babies, every kid I know of is born selfish. I'll give you a point in case. They're either born in the middle of the night or they start coming in the middle of the night. Either way, lady, you ain't getting no sleep. <laughs> and neither is dad. Now I'm telling you, they come in this world kicking and screaming and as soon as they get here, they're like, feed me, clothe me, clean me. Me! <laughs> fact, as they grow up, man, I, my, I've never had a four-year-old. I loved my kids between the ages of two and five. I really loved them at those ages. I love them every age, but I really like that age. I really do. But I've never had a four-year-old child come up to me and put their arm around me like, Dad, you're a good man. You work hard. You put food on our table. We got this nice house to live in. You buy me toys and clothes. Is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> no, nah, man, I mean, I'd be in the middle of cleaning the gutters up on a ladder, digging things up, and they'd be like, tie my shoe! You know, I mean, they're selfish. And it's my job as a dad to get them out of that. But things don't change as you get adults. I'll give you one word, selfie. I mean, I don't care. You see teenagers doing it, and they got the dumb duck lip face. I mean, I see, I see people on airplanes all the time, like they're going somewhere. I said, stop that. But then you got gra grandmas do it. How do you do this now? You know, and they're trying to do a selfie so they can put it on the Facebook, you know, that kind of thing. We already love ourselves. I mean, think about what we do. If we are hungry, we feed ourselves. At our house, our house is fun, man. I mean, we just have a good time all the time. But one time we were eating at a Chinese restaurant, and uh, we were sitting around. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a round table, and it had a Lazy Susan in the center of it. You know, you know what I'm talking about, Lazy Susan, a little uh, ball-bearing wheel in the, in the center. And, you know, I know it's customary in China, a lot of times a family style, and everybody just kind of eats from the same bowl. And so they just put all the stuff down on that Lazy Susan, and there we are as a family. Everybody could see each other, and everybody was spinning that wheel and getting food, and we were just having a great time. And we needed a new kitchen table at our house. We, we had this rickety one that from when we got married, and it was getting all busted up. And so I, I told Minnie, I said, we need to get a table like this. I don't know where you get a table that's round like this. And there's, you know, there's five kids and my wife, and so, so there's seven of us, and so we need a big one. 
And so I did some research, and I found this guy who's an Amish carpenter that can make me a custom-made table. And so we got this big table, round table, got a Lazy Susan made in the center, and it was expensive. But I told my wife, I said, listen, let's forget going to, I mean, let's forget going to Disney World or some big vacation or something like that. Let's get this table, because honestly, we will make more memories around this table than we will at Disney World. And, 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 I'm just, and look, I, and, and I wanted to spend the bucks on this table because I want a table that my kids will fight over when I'm dead. You know, I mean, that's, well, that's what I wanted. <laughs> and so we got this lazy table in the center, uh, lazy Susan in the center there. And man, mom will make some big homemade meal and put it down in there. And, and it's on that. And so, of course, we got to pray. And don't you love kids when you're praying? Mom, their eyes were open. How'd you know that? Well, uh, you know, right? All kids do that kind of stuff. And, and, and man, I don't know, there's just certain items on this Lazy Susan that when you know you've got other siblings, it's like, I got to get me some of that before it's gone. And so I'll watch my kids. I mean, while, while somebody's praying, they're putting their finger on that Lazy Susan. In their <laughs> Turning it so the biscuits will come back. So as soon as I say amen, they can, you know... Grab them. Do you know why they do that? Because when, when, when a person is hungry, they feed themselves. When, a person, when, when you're sick, you, you know, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to get some medicine. And then I'm going to tell the whole world how nobody's ever had a common cold as bad as this one is. You know? Why? We naturally are selfish people. What I mean by that is this. We are consumed with caring for ourselves. We don't just think about it. We don't just talk about it. We do it. You know what Jesus is saying here? Love people like that. Don't think about helping people. I know I should go do that for that guy. Do it. Don't don't just talk about it. Do it. That's how you love yourself. Love other people that way. Why don't you think sometimes, what is that person's need and how can I meet it? And then do it. And you talk about, is that person saved? Don't just think about it, go ask them. Man, you see somebody in church that's new and they're sitting by themselves or somebody's been here a long time and they're sitting by themselves, go sit by them. You know, I've had people in our church come up to me and go, hey, I've been noticing this guy, he's kind of new, what's his name? Well, go ask them. I mean, I know their name, but go ask them. You know, I mean, hello, right? I mean, just look after people. Can I just say this and I'm coming to close. I'm, I'm done. I'll tell you one more story. Love may not make the world go around, but it does make the trip worthwhile. Jesus said, love God with all your heart and all your soul and mind. And if you love God, you will you know, love people. Here's a story I'd like to tell you. I heard a little parable. I, th- I thought it was pretty good. There's a man, he was in the office one day, and his boss came in, and his boss was in a bad, foul mood. He was real grouchy. And right there in front of everybody else in the office, he just dressed this man down. I mean, he just, for seemingly no good reason, he just, just chewed him out in front of everybody. Man, it really bothered this guy. He's like, man, I didn't even do anything. This guy's just frustrated about his bad day, and he's taking it out on me. And he's my boss, so I can't really come back at him. I don't want to get in trouble with him and get fired or something. So he just took it, but it soured his spirit. And the whole way driving home, he's fuming about it on the interstate. And so he walks in the door, and his wife is already home, and she's, she's excited to see him. She says, hey, sweetheart, good to see you. And he just lights into her and takes out all his frustration on her. And she says, well, you know, I mean, it's my husband. I'm supposed to be respectful to him. And, and I don't know what I ever did to him, but he's being a real jerk. But I'm not going to make it worse. But what she does is she's frustrated and grieved in her spirit. So she turns to her 10-year-old boy and just kind of takes it out on him. And he's sitting there going, well, what did I do, man? I'm only 10 years old and I can't sass back to my mom. And I get in trouble if I do that. But I didn't even do anything. I was just here. And she's in a bad mood. And now she's taking it out on me. So he decides to go outside. When he goes outside, there's his dog. His dog's happy to see him, but he's aggravated. So he kicks his dog. His poor dog goes, oh, man, you know what I do? This is my boy. I I don't even do anything. What what do you do that for? So the dog's aggravated, and here comes a stranger walking up the driveway. So the dog runs over to the stranger and bites him on the leg. 
Come to find out the stranger was the boss. He had come by his employee's house to apologize for his bad behavior. I guess the point of the little parable is just this. We ought to love people. Because you never know what people are going through. You never know what happened to somebody in their day. You don't know the burdens that they're carrying. You don't know the struggles that they've had. You know, sometimes we read into people's body language and their behavior, and we don't always know what's going on behind it. And I know that people can be stinkers. And I know that every good Baptist church has a few of them, or many of them. Just love people. And how can we love people the best? By loving God first. You say, well, man, we were wanting something deep tonight. Sorry. But I know this much. I I know this much. That if this meeting can conclude, and Wooden Valley Baptist Church and the people that comprise it will love God better than when the week started, revival would have happened. I mean, every day. That's it. Love God. As I love God, love people. That's it. Let me ask you a few questions tonight. Question number one. Do you just need to get back to the basics? According to the points, how much do you love God? I don't know that we have some kind of measuring tool that can measure how much we love God, but he did tell us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. And while I don't know how to measure how much I love God or how much you love God, here's what I can say. I do know this, that if I were to ask you around this room on a Wednesday night, do you love God? I think everybody in this room would say, yes, I love God. But if I went around and I said to everybody in this room and asked you point blank, individually, do you love God as much as you ought to love him? I think every one of us would go, no. So while we can't measure it, we know we should love him more. Here's my second question. Do you love other people? Is there somebody here tonight you've mistreated and you need to apologize to them? Do it. Is there somebody here that you, maybe not here, or maybe it is here, or maybe it's in your family or in your workplace that you resent, you despise, you're bitter and angry with? Why don't you ask the Lord to help you with that and forgive and love? Are you concerned For other people, are you consumed about caring for other people? I'll be quite honest. It's very easy for me to get very selfish and care about numero uno. But we know we should love other people. Maybe there's a difficult person in your life. Maybe you need to pray for them instead of getting aggravated at them. Have you ever stopped to think that sometimes the difficult people God puts in our life are there to help us grow? Sometimes the problem people in our life we just need to love and thank God for. I pray the Lord will help us tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me preach a little bit tonight. I hope the message was a help.